Well, I want to begin this morning with a participation question for all of us. How many of you know who Monse Musa I is? Any takers? Trisha, maybe? All right. Okay, that's, that's kind of what I expected. Maybe one person. Monse Musa I was a ruler, 14th century, West Africa. Pretty powerful guy. He had a lot going on. I draw your attention to him because if I asked you, who knows who Elon Musk is? Uh, I think kind of all put our hands up, right? Or Jeff Bezos. Well, these guys, they own things. They do things. They have a lot of money. Maybe the richest people that we know of in our day and age. Mansa Musa I, who lived in the 14th century, was estimated to be worth $400 billion, twice as much as the richest person we know of today. And yet, none of you know, much less care, who he is. His life and his wealth has not impacted you whatsoever. I draw this to our attention because we need reminders in this life that maybe it's not about how much money and how much power and how much we've accumulated in this life. Because a guy who lived a long time ago died. And now where's all that stuff? Life is short. And many times we get caught up in accumulating and gathering as much as we can in this life for ourselves, for our happiness, for the good of others. And yet we're reminded that death is coming. This morning I hope to turn our thoughts and our ideas to the fact that life is short and maybe we're not meant to be living for this life. Maybe we're not meant to be caught up in making the most of this life now. It's going to end. And therefore, to point at what is the purpose of this life? If I can't take any of these things with me, my wealth, my success, and my value won't matter when I'm dead, then why? What should life even look like? Well, I believe our text in Genesis 5 tells us that, and here's the one idea that I want us to walk away with today, remembering that walking with God is the way of life. Walking with God is the way of life. I started a series last week looking at the Hall of Faith, which we see in Hebrews 11, but we're looking at the Old Testament context for each of these heroes of the faith. And today, we come to the second of these heroes, Enoch. And so go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 5. This is on page 4 if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you. And it will help you to follow along, uh, even though we are only given four verses on Enoch and two more in the New Testament. We have six verses total about this one guy. Not a lot to work with, and yet I trust that you'll find God's word to impact your heart of what we are told about this man, Enoch. 
Genesis chapter 5. Would you follow along as I read the entire chapter, all 32 verses? This is the document containing the family records of Adam. On the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female. When they were created, he blessed them and called them mankind. Adam was 130 years old when he fathered a son in his likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Adam lived 800 years after he fathered Seth, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Adam's life lasted 930 years, and then he died. Seth was 105 years old when he fathered Enosh. Seth lived 807 years after he fathered Enosh, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Seth's life lasted 912 years, and then he died. Enosh was 90 years old when he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived 815 years, and after he fathered Kenan, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Enosh's life lasted 905 years. Then he died. Kenan was 70 years old when he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived 840 years after he fathered Mahalalel, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Kenan's life lasted 910 years. Then he died. Mahalalel was 65 years old when he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived 830 years after he fathered Jared, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Mahalalel's life lasted 895 years. Then he died. Jared was 162 years old when he fathered Enoch. Jared lived 800 years after he fathered Enoch, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Jared's life lasted 962 years. Then he died. Enoch was 65 years old when he fathered Methuselah. And after he fathered Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Enoch's life lasted 365 years. Enoch walked with God. Then he was not there because God took him. Methuselah was 187 years old when he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived 782 years after he fathered Lamech, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Methuselah's life lasted 969 years. Then he died. Lamech was 182 years old when he fathered a son. And he named him Noah, saying, This one will bring us relief from the agonizing labor of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. Lamech lived 595 years after he fathered Noah, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Lamech's life lasted 777 years. Then he died. Noah was 500 years old, and he fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. There are two points that I want to be able to make this morning, the first of which is living for this life ends in death, and the second of which is walking with God ends in life. So I want to start with this first point of thinking about living for this life ends in death. All right, we just read 32 verses of 10 people's lives. I don't know how often you like to read genealogies. Uh, I worked on these names for a long time to make sure I could say them somewhat correctly, at least intelligibly. Why are we given all these names? Well, what you'll find is 10 names that are listed. Uh, each were kind of given a son. Uh, we know for a fact that for Adam, his son Seth was not the firstborn. 
Uh, we'll come back to him in a moment. Uh, we don't know for the others if the sons who are listed are the firstborn or not. Uh, we get all the way down to Noah, and all of a sudden we're told in verse 32 that Noah had three sons, and we're kind of left there. All right, that's because Noah's life story is going to continue on in the next few chapters. If you want to hear more about Noah, you have to come back in three weeks when I preach again. All right? Now, this genealogy actually is not out of the norm. We're given another genealogy exactly like it in Genesis chapter 11, where again, we're given 10 names of these generations uh, and left with kind of who's next in line to think about their life story. Probably the, one of the biggest questions that naturally comes to mind for us as we look at this genealogy is, man, did these people really live this long? This is wild. Some of these people lived almost a thousand years. Can that possibly be true? Well, the Bible says it is, and I tend to want to approach these texts, uh, understanding them not to be allegory or hypotheticals, but to be literal in how we understand them. And for us, there, I would argue, is no reason for us to take these as symbolic numbers. We're not dealing with apocalyptic literature or prophetic literature. And the numbers themselves aren't exact, are they? They seem to vary in type. But for us to understand that God intended for mankind to populate the earth and hear a gift of long life, I believe these are actual years of life, that these men did live this long. Part of that is because we're told at the beginning of Genesis chapter 6 that as man rebels and sin is just all over creation, that God limits man's life to less years. And really, every genealogy after this and the rest of Scripture, nobody is living this long. Life has become shorter after what we're going to call the flood that we'll talk about here in three weeks. And so we have actual years of people who live long life to populate the earth. And we're given examples of these people and their sons passed down generation to generation. But why on earth are we told about these people's lives? Well, I think there are four reasons why we're given this genealogy. First, is that God gave Adam a seed that would continue. All right, here we need to reflect on what we talked about last week in Genesis chapter 4 where Adam and Eve had two sons, Cain and Abel. And if you were here last week, you remember how well that went. Uh, Cain becoming angry and upset that his uh, offering was not accepted and that Abel's was. And we have the first murder in history that Cain kills his brother Abel. And so here we are given evidence that God has not given up on mankind and that it will not come to an end in this way, but that Adam's seed will continue. If you look at the very end of chapter 4, in verse 25, we're told Adam was intimate with his wife again, and he gave birth, she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has given me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. Here we are given evidence of God's good mercy and grace to mankind, that the seed would continue. Here even is a contrast of Cain's line which is filled with sin and this one who is left to wander the earth without any prosperity of the ground, that he would be a wanderer and destitute of all things. His lineage there is given at the end of chapter four. But now in chapter five, 
we are given Seth's lineage, that the line continues, which gives us the second reason that we are given this genealogy. We are given a picture of a seed that continues from Adam all the way to Noah. In one sense, we are fast-forwarding the timeline to say here is where God's gift to mankind continues on. He continues to give those who follow him. And so going from Adam to Seth all the way to Noah, who is the next one to receive God's promises, the next one who is walking with God, and we're told all about his life. And so we're connected here of Adam to Noah, really a next type of Adam. Thirdly, we're given this account of this genealogy to remind us that none of these men succeeded in the role of deliverer. Remember, to Adam and Eve was given this promise that God would send one who would crush the serpent, who would defeat sin and death. And yet, ten times over here, we find out it was none of these guys. Ended in death. But fourthly, I believe we're given this genealogy for the point of this sermon. That we might think well about the brevity of life and what it means to actually live. And so before we move on to really the most significant part of this section of Genesis, I do want us to dwell for a moment on this brevity of life. The reminder in each of these men's lives that it ended in death. We're told nothing about what they really accomplished, what was done, what wealth they had, what success they had. We're told one heir that leads to another heir, and so on. But it ends in death. And that calls our attention to live our life with the reality that death is inevitable. I'm not trying to be a Debbie Downer, right? I'm not trying to discourage us, but to help us deal with what is quite literally reality. That death awaits us. And this morning, I want to encourage us that that doesn't have to be a discouraging thing, but can actually be a reality that is somewhat hopeful. I don't know what difficulties and struggles you face in this life. And we talk about those who live to be 90 or 100 or even 110 and what long life they've had. Can you imagine with whatever you endure day to day, to live this life for 900 years. For us to settle the fact that death brings about the end of something that is no longer permanent. It will not last forever. There's a, a hint of encouragement there that I want to pull out as we go through the rest of this sermon. But here, dealing with the reality that we, in our lives, cannot ignore death. No, but willing to recognize it and say, how do I live my life in light of the fact that death is coming? How am I called to live? And so how are we meant to live life in light of the inevitability of death? Well, 
We were meant to live life with God. It starts in this life, but it continues beyond because God is outside of our time. He is eternal. And therefore, life with God now gives me a glimpse of life with God for eternity. And so my desire is to have a short first point, which I'm concluding now, to move to a much longer second point. Secondly, walking with God ends in life. If this life is not to be lived, because we know that death is inevitable, then how are we to live life? Well, by walking with God. How does it end in life? Well, let's focus on really the the topic of this sermon series. Enoch, the one who is the hero of faith. Look with me again at verses 21 through 24. Enoch was 65 years old when he fathered Methuselah. And after he fathered Methuselah, now we have a change in the language that we saw repeated all throughout. Enoch walked with God. 300 years. And he fathered other sons and daughters. So Enoch's life lasted 365 years. And now repeated again, Enoch walked with God. And he was not there because God took him. Here we see the anomaly and the pattern. This is not just someone that we're told about who lived life, had another kid, and then eventually died. No, here all of a sudden it is broken up as one who walked with God, emphasized twice to give us context that Enoch was different. This is what made all the difference in Enoch's life. He was defined. He was defined as somebody who was walking with God, the creator. It's wonderful And amazing to think about this idea of someone who walked with God and yet God took him. God did not let him suffer death, but took him. But what did that walk look like? I think this walk gave hope in the face of death. If all of natural life ends in death, then what's the purpose? Well, we're meant to live in a particular way. I think as we just dwell on this very short phrase of walked with God, it will help us understand two things about what Enoch's life looked like. What does it mean to walk with God? Well, we're going to define this quite a bit here over the next few minutes, but to start here by recognizing, one, it means that God, the creator, the sustainer, can be known. He can be walked with. That's foremost for us to admit and to recognize that God can be known. He is one that we can actually live life with, to be with the creator. But also too, if God's the creator and he controls all things, then walking with God reminds us that God actually wants to be walked with. It isn't just that he can be walked with, but that we are favorable in his eyes when we walk with him. It is a favorable thing for God to be in relation with mankind. This relationship that was broken at the fall. See, Adam and Eve, they walked with God in the garden and then sin came into this world and they were kicked out of the garden. And the walk was far different all of a sudden. 
But we get generations down the line and we find Enoch who finds himself a little bit closer to where Adam and Eve were in the garden. He finds himself walking with God. I want to give us an illustration that hopefully will help kind of cement this idea throughout some of the application of the sermon. The idea that we would walk with God. I would argue this is actually not all that foreign of a concept because you and I walk with one another in many ways in life. We think about our own human relationships. Many of us have these types of relationships already. Some of us long for them. Uh, we, We think about the relationship of Uh, a dating couple who desire to know one another, to get to know each other, to experience life together. The experience of, of a husband and wife who live together, who've committed to one another, who are in this relationship. But I think it even goes to even parents to children or friends in a way that we relate to each other. It's important for us to think about how we treat even those human relationships as I've had opportunity to be thinking through pre-engagement, premarital counseling, counseling couples, think about what does marriage look like, what does a good relationship look like, we often get to the heart of saying, oh, it really has to do with that way that we build vulnerability and intimacy with one another, to actually know that other person. Because it would be foolish of me to say, oh yeah, I really, really want to know you, but like, just give me the bare facts. Maybe some highlights. That'd be cool. Let's not get real serious. Let's not talk about anything that's like gets real deep. All right, that'd be foolish, right? We'd say, you don't know that person at all. You know things about them, but you don't know them. And they don't know you. But to actually have our hearts opened up in vulnerability, to show that I trust them and they can trust me, to grow in that relationship. Even to think really practically about the depth of some of those relationships. You know, if I go out on a date with my wife and I'm sitting here at dinner, texting away, checking my email. That's a good point. Yeah, good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Love that about you. Good. Yep. It's not a good relationship, right? Speaks to where my attention, my love my, my care is pointed. Let me turn that to think about God. Oh, because I wake up in the morning and oh, I got emails. Oh, I got texts to send. Yeah, oh, I got, I'll get to, God, I'll get to that. Yeah, okay, all right. I'll put my phone on silent. Ten minutes, it's all yours. I'm going to pray. I'm going to read the word. Now the rest of the day is consumed on this. So give you an idea of what it means to walk with God? Where's our attention, our heart, our desire, our love, our delight? Is it captivated in a relationship with God? Now, I know that this illustration for many in this room can be really difficult because you don't have that type of relationship even on a human level. Perhaps you've lost your loved one. Perhaps you've never had a loved one in this way. And it's your desire, maybe a commitment even to a life of celibacy that you might not ever know another human exactly in this way. 
to an intimate and deep level. And yet, I would challenge you and encourage you to remember, and Christ tells us, these relationships, even in a marriage relationship, are not meant for eternity. But there is one that is meant for eternity. It's God. That we are meant to walk with him. And he provides a way for us to do that. Friends, the most important and intimate relationship that we can ever have in this life is with God himself. Why? Because it's more than just about this life, but speaks to the life of eternity, eternal life in which we dwell with God. And so what does walking with God actually look like? Well, I think in this context, as we think about Enoch, we need to be able to turn and think about what is said about Enoch. And so Hebrews 11, that Dylan read for us earlier in the scripture reading, it tells us, what did Enoch's walk look like? Let me read this text for us again, Hebrews 11, verses 5 and 6. By faith, Enoch was taken away, and so he did not experience death. He was not to be found because God took him away. For before he was taken away, he was approved as one who pleased God. Now, without faith, it is impossible to please God, since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Enoch was taken away by God out of this life and did not experience death. And why? Oh, because he was approved as one who pleased God. One whose walk was pleasing to God. Now, before all of our alarms go off on legalism and concerns of keeping the law and doing everything right so that God is pleased with us, we need to reflect on what that looked like, even in this text of Hebrews 11. It was by faith that Enoch pleased God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Don't miss this part of it. Enoch's walk with God had nothing to do with all of his actions and his good works and his deeds, but it had everything to do with his heart of faith before God. To be able to be one who is practicing faith and seeing faith lived out in his life. And so living a life pleasing to God has nothing to do with my legalism of keeping all the rules and doing enough good work. It has everything to do with what do I believe? What is belief that changes who I am? And having faith in God. Here, we're reminded of Enoch's faith that God was who he said he was and that God was going to do what God said he was going to do. I want to reflect back to that distinction between the line of Cain, which is devastating and sorrowful, being described by sin and corruption, and now this line of Seth, which continues on. And here, right in the middle of the line of Seth, is highlighted one who believed the promises of God. One who had faith that God was going to do what God said he was going to do, and that God was who God said he was. Here is somebody who walked with God, 
and it was pleasing. And yet, the genealogy continues, doesn't it? It wasn't that Enoch was taken away and all right, humanity's done, we found the guy who walked with God. There's still something to highlight that whatever Enoch did, it still wasn't good enough to redeem mankind. And so the genealogy continues. And genealogy after genealogy after genealogy all throughout Scripture until... Do you know what the last genealogy in Scripture is? Matthew chapter 1. The genealogy that ends with a man named Jesus Christ. Because after him, no other genealogy matters. The promised deliverer given to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3 that was fueling the thinking of Enoch who trusted in God, having faith in him. Oh, that deliverer ultimately is seen in that final genealogy of Jesus Christ. Because he was the one who perfectly, without sin, walked with God. This Jesus Christ, the Son of God, come to earth, not to rule and reign and conquer all of mankind, but to seek and to save those who were lost, to serve us by living a perfect life, not deserving of death, the punishment of sin, and yet he willingly went to the cross to die for us. Why? That we would have life. Because in his death on the cross, he defeated sin. Now in him no longer is there a, a penalty of sin. There is no longer that fear of what sin might bring. No, it is actually in Christ alone through his perfect life and yet his death on the cross that sin is defeated. And it's trust in him that allows us to know that we ourselves have been forgiven of our own sin because of Christ. It is faith that delivers us through Christ. But Jesus Christ dying on the cross didn't stay dead. He rose to new life. And is that hope that we have that it isn't just about that we live this life and die and now there's nothing. No, we're told quite clearly that in Christ there is new life, both in this life but more in the life to come. 1 John chapter 5 says, God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. The one who has the Son has life. And the one who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. What is life about? Well, it's not about just the here and now. But it is about eternal life that Jesus Christ has given us through his death and his resurrection, his power over sin and death. That is the gospel call for all of us. It is the only thing that makes life truly worth living. To know that we look forward to the day that we are with Christ for eternity. That is our hope. And if this message is new to your ears, if this idea of living life for what is to come and not for what is now is new, oh, trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. You will not be disappointed. You will not... Be discouraged, but you will find in him life eternal and hope. And it is for us 
to believe and to repent of sin, to trust in him. A work that God does in and through the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And so we can rejoice that it is faith that fuels our life to live because we know what Christ has accomplished for us. Enoch had faith in who God was, in what God had promised. It had clearly been passed down through the generations. What else would Enoch be trusting in other than a God who had made promises to his ancestors and Enoch trusted that God would fulfill those? We have the privilege and the joy to look back in history and to see that come to life in Jesus Christ and for us to trust in him. And so we even look here at Enoch's life in Genesis 5 and remember, yeah, he was taken away. He went straight from walking with God in this life to enjoying God for eternity. What a marvelous gift. Are we guaranteed that that will happen for us? Uh, I doubt it, all right? If you're like hoping that if you walk with God, God might just make you disappear, uh, I wouldn't count on that. We'd know of two people, all right, Enoch, and then later Elijah, we're going to find out, was taken up in some crazy chariot. Um, all right, I wouldn't anticipate that. God might choose to do that for you. Praise God if he does. However, I do know what we are promised in Ephesians chapter 2. But God, who is rich in mercy... Because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. We have life now. Even though we were dead in trespasses and sin, he has given us life, spiritual life now. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace. Through faith, and this is not from ourselves, it is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. Here, even the proclamation of eternal life with God in heaven, being with Jesus, seated with him. This is our hope, not just to be taken out of this life, but that whenever God chooses to end this life, oh, that we would know him in heaven to be able to be seated with him eternally. That is our hope. And that is what captures our attention, is walking with God is, is right now a practice and a joy of what is to come for eternity. And so what does it look like, realistically, for you and I to walk by faith right now with God? Well, I do think that Hebrews 11, again, gives us context for this. In two ways, that even in Enoch's faith, he believed that God exists and that God rewards those who have faith in him, right? It's faith that God will bless us. So let me quickly talk through some application as we think about kind of these two ideas. What does it mean for you and I to walk with God in a way that describes faith in our lives as one who believes that God exists. Well, to go back to a little bit of what I was talking about earlier, the idea of knowing God. Faith that God exists is to believe that we can know God. 
It starts with an admission in my own heart that the creator of the universe desires to be known by us, by you. He makes himself known to us. And when we know somebody, it's because we spend time with them and we desire to know them and we pursue knowing them. And so I do ask in your life, what does it look like to pursue knowledge of God, of knowing him, that he actually exists? He's real. He's here. And we can walk with him. I do think some of us need to walk out this door and take this device and throw it as far as we possibly can away from ourselves. I don't know what it means for you to kind of disconnect, to actually get away from what captivates your every waking thought. But what will it look like this week for you to know God? I think this means that we meditate on who he is. It might mean that, honestly, you need to take a trip, go out to the ocean by yourself, sit in silence. I mean, God forbid, silence, right? Take out your ear pods, all right? Actually meditate on a truth of who God is. I wonder when the last time is that you've been able to do that, to just sit with God, to rest with him. And to think deeply of who he is. Now, I don't think it's realistic that you and I can all move off to some caves and disappear and only meditate on God for the rest of our lives. But I do think it's our calling as Christians to know God. And how do we know him? It's spending time with him in his word and in prayer. And frankly, turning our thoughts to him often throughout our days. Life will continue on. We work jobs. We have other relationships. There is fullness in life because there is joy in this life. And yet we can't let it captivate our every thought. Know God by dwelling with him and meditating on him. I think that this idea is brought to us by a number of really faithful authors from guys like uh, uh, John Piper or even Michael Reeves to even guys that are much older uh, who have written well, like John Owen, uh, even C.H. Spurgeon, some brothers who have written well about what it looks like to let our thoughts dwell on who God is, to captivate our souls. Oh, that our desire might be turned to him, to make much of him, because he is what? gives us all of life. He is the one who is greater than all things. And so cut out those distractions. Find yourself dwelling with God. And I think that means enjoying him. Do you enjoy God's presence? Just like we'd enjoy walking with someone else in this life, sharing experiences and moments, Are you able to do that with God? I get it. We we don't have God in human form with us right here. But he's given us his Holy Spirit in which he comforts us and works in and and through us, right? He's given us himself in his word and in prayer and the lives of other Christians. There are many ways in which God himself is with us and are we walking with him?
to enjoy him and to rest in him. Secondly, that faith, not just that God exists, but that God blesses us. That God would give blessing to those who have faith in him. No, I'm not preaching here that there's a prosperity gospel. All right, I think that's absolute foolishness. And scripture is quite clear that we don't live for the things in this life. But to live in a way that knows that God blesses those who walk with him, oh, it turns my attention to the fact that it's that faith that as I live that out, God has given me everything that I need, particularly in Christ Jesus. And my heart wells up in trust and faith in him because God provides for me. And at its greatest point, that provision is still ahead of me. The way that he has ultimately blessed me, it is far ahead in eternity. The hope that I live with now, looking forward to the day to come. That it's not about life lived here, but life lived with God for eternity. And so that my heart would be settled in contentedness. I wonder how content are you with this life? Are you content with what God has given you? Are you content with your lot in life? God gave it to you for a purpose and a reason. He gave you this life. Does that turn our hearts and our minds to God? That no matter what comes, no matter what happens, I'm walking with God. And therefore, it's okay. There's more to life than right this moment. Jeremiah Burroughs writes uh, for us to think about contentment in his book, Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. My brethren, the reason why you have not got contentment in the things of the world is not because you have not got enough of them. That is not the reason. But the reason is because they are not things proportionable to that immortal soul of yours that is capable of God himself. Many men think that when they are troubled and have not got contentment, it is because they have but a little in the world. And if they had more than they would be content. That is just as if a man were hungry and to satisfy his craving stomach, he would gape and hold open his mouth to take in the wind and then should think that the reason why he is not satisfied is because he has not got enough of the wind. No, the reason is because the thing is not suitable to a craving stomach. My friends, what our hearts and souls desire most is to be with God in his presence. And so how foolish of us to run after the things of this world as if that is what will satisfy when what we need most is God himself. And therefore, for me to be content in this life, and to be confident in the blessing that God has promised in heaven. That God has promised eternal life for all those who trust in him. Do you live in this life with an eternal perspective? That I'm walking with God now because I get to walk with God for eternity. In one sense, this is kind of a little bit of practice. Just a glimpse of what is to come. Oh, that our hearts would be given to knowing God, and to walking with him. We weren't created to live life for right now. We weren't. 
God, an eternal being overseeing all things, has given us life that we would know him and enjoy him, even in a broken world, so that we might experience him in fullness in eternity. Enoch lived out the truth that living by faith, it it does please God, and he was taken up. He lived in a way that displayed his faith, that God exists, and that God blesses those who trust in him. And so we don't live for this life. No, we seek to walk with God, enjoying this life, living here for sure. But our hope and our mind is set on the life to come. It's by faith that we walk with God, that changes our perspective in every area of life. And so for you and I, as we think about this text and this guy who was taken up, it reminds us today, walking with God is the way of life. Would you pray with me? God, we come before you humbled even this morning, knowing that you have done a great work on our behalf through Christ Jesus. And it's by faith that we live this life, walking with you, knowing that you have accomplished great things and that you will accomplish even greater things in drawing us to you for eternity. And so, God, we ask that our hearts would well up inside, that that we would be filled with the joy of walking with you, that you have made yourself known to us, that we might know you, that your word would be alive to us, and that we would find ourselves often in prayer and in relationship with you. So, God, we ask that you would strengthen our faith, that we would not do these things in our own strength, in our own willpower, that we'd find ourselves given to trusting you, the work that you do in our hearts. We'll bring about faith to trust you even more. And so we ask that you would strengthen our faith even today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.